every time this doctor would just send me away with pain relief. <laughs> like trying to find the real cause was just a bit too hard. Yeah, not good enough. You saw me multiple times. I was proper sick and you just got it wrong. Hello and welcome to the Medical Protection Podcast. This is the case file series where we learn from real cases and real consequences. My name is Dr. Ellen Walsh and I'm a medical legal consultant based in Dublin. Today I have the pleasure to be talking with Dr. Don Maguire, who's a medical legal consultant based in Edinburgh. We'll be discussing a case about a misdiagnosis and looking particularly at the issues around communication and record keeping. Dawn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Ellen. Dawn, to get us started, could you give our listeners a quick summary setting out the backgrounds of this case? So this case relates to a 17-year-old lady with a past medical history of ovarian cysts presenting to the emergency department, or ED, I, I shall say from here onwards, with a one-hour history of acute left-sided abdominal pain. The onset was sudden and it was excruciating, associated with vomiting, and she was extremely restless. She had presented before with pain in the same location due to her ovarian cysts, but this time the pain is more severe. The ED doctor, Dr. P, reviewed the patient and undertook further investigations, including a urine pregnancy test, which was negative. He also administered antiemetics and analgesia for symptomatic relief. Dr. P felt that this was yet another ovarian cyst, having excluded an ectopic pregnancy, and he called the on-call gynecologist, Dr. Yu, to discuss the patient. He believed that the patient was safe for discharge, and Dr. Yu apparently agreed. Dr. P, the ED doctor, recorded these in the notes. Discussed with on-call gynecologist, agrees with discharge. So it was very much a one-liner. Dr. Yu, on the other hand, did not have any documentation of the conversation. Dr. P then discharged the patient with analgesia and provided safety netting advice to the patient's mother to bring her back if the pain um, persisted for longer than 48 hours. 12 hours later, the patient represented with ongoing pain and following an abdominal ultrasound was diagnosed with missed ovarian torsion with gangrenous changes. The patient then sued both Dr. P and Dr. Yu for the failure to diagnose her ovarian torsion. Dr. Yu, who did not see the patient at all, said that he was unaware of the severity of the pain and the presence of vomiting. If he had known, he would have included ovarian torsion in his differential diagnosis and suggested an abdominal ultrasound. He also felt that the conversation with Dr. P was just an informal check-in rather than a formal referral. Dr. P, the ED doctor, on the other hand, said that he provided the gynecologist, Dr. Yu, who was supposed to be the specialist in this field, with the full patient history and examination findings. He did admit that he did not feel there was a serious gynecological emergency, but he was, in fact, referring to an exclusion of an ectopic pregnancy. Ovarian torsion did not even enter his mind as a potential diagnosis. Thanks, Dawn, for those background details that are really helpful. And I'd like to start by listening to a dramatization of events from our members' point of view to help our listeners get a better understanding of what it was like. Let's play that now. 
I was working as a locum in a very busy ED. Bella, a 17-year-old young woman, came in with her mother. Now, she'd been seen the year before for an ovarian cyst, so this time she said the pain was worse and she was vomiting and restless. Now, I thought it was most probably just another cyst, but I wanted to rule out an ectopic, so I examined her abdomen, did a VE and a urine pregnancy test. The test was negative and, as expected, she was guarding and tender around the left ovary. I checked with the on-call gynaecologist because of her pain and vomiting. He agreed with my diagnosis, so I gave her more codeine and paracetamol and told her and her mother to return if the pain got worse or lasted for more than 48 hours. Now, I didn't see Bella when she returned. First I heard was a call from the hospital a few weeks later. I was pretty upset. I guess I never thought of ovarian torsion, but I called the gynaecologist. Wasn't it his job to think of that? I think the thing that first hit struck me when I listened to that and read the case was the evident issues with communication between the two doctors. And I see that a lot in the cases that I assist members with. I, I expect you see that a lot too, Don. but where do you see the biggest problems in communication in this particular case? Um, yes, thank you, Eleanor. I share your view. Ironically, the single biggest problem in communication in this particular case is the illusion that it had taken place when it either hadn't really, or at least not adequately and effectively. And by communication, I think we are referring to both oral communication, which is the dialogue between the two doctors, and written communication, that is what was recorded in the medical records. So um, let's look at the two doctors one by one. Dr. Yu, the gynecologist, was unaware of the severity of the pain or the vomiting episodes. He relied on Dr. P, stressing that he had ruled out a serious gynecological emergency and he thought it was just an informal checking in rather than a formal referral. Otherwise, he would have asked more questions. In essence, um, the gynecological doctor did not fully understand the purpose of the call, and he did not ensure that he had all the relevant information, and he had the responsibility to ask questions. Ovarian cyst is, after all, the biggest risk factor for ovarian torsion, and in a distressed young lady with known ovarian cyst, torsion needs to be ruled out. Dr. Yu might feel hard done by that he was roped into a claim when he did not even see the patient, but his advice was sought, so he had duty of care. Dr. P, the ED doctor, on the other hand, insisted that he had relayed all the, re the relevant clinical information and that the telephone call was a formal referral for specialist guidance. He admitted he did not feel that there was a serious gynae emergency, but he was referring to ectopic pregnancy. He felt that he should be able to rely on the specialist to enlighten him of anything else that he hadn't thought of or may have missed. After all, ovarian torsion is rare and he had never come across such a case before, but the gynae should have pointed that out to him. So Dr. P needs to be clear and concise in his communication, clear about the purpose of the call, whether it's a referral or an advice, 
and double check the receiver's understanding so as to avoid all ambiguity. Thanks, Don. Um, I think there's an awful lot of assumptions going on here, both for the gynecologist and the emergency doctor. And it's very common when everybody's really busy, they're trying to get as much done as possible within the time. Everybody's really busy in the clinical environment. So what's, what comes through to me listening to that is the assumptions that the gynecologist made and the assumptions that the emergency doctor made and also the lack of clarity because they made those assumptions. They didn't actually check or clarify. Um, so if you were to give advice, if either of these doctors approached you because there was a complaint or a claim and you were to give either of these doctors advice, what would be your top tips for effective communication to avoid these problems in the first place? Yes, absolutely, Ellen. So many doctors confuse confidence in communication with competence. Um, we believe we have relayed information clearly when in fact um, it has not been heard correctly or received safely at all. So transmission of clear message is important. Um, doctors need to use common language or standardized communication strategies. Avoid assumptions, as you have um, pointed out there, Ellen, um, and ensure that um, the information that we read is, is very clear, especially around areas of responsibility, as this will dramatically reduce medical legal risk. We need to also check that the message was safely received repeat back where appropriate. So for example, Dr. P did specify that he had ruled out ectopic pregnancy rather than simply um, a gynecological emergency, but said that he would value Dr. Yu's advice if anything else needs to be done. Dr. Yu, the gyne doctor on the other hand, could repeat the summary of the patient, patient presentation back to Dr. P and check what Dr. P meant by gynecological emergencies. So really, I think what you're saying um, is that active listening is important and mm -hmm. double checking. So avoid all communications and just double check the good questions um, around what you think is happening or the information that's been given. Um, is, that, is that essentially what you're, you're saying? Absolutely, Ellen. And so, yes, you've just um, checked your understanding with me there. Yes. <laughs> so that's it in practice. Um, yes. So the other thing that struck me in this case, apart from the communication issues, which are really common in clinical practice, the other thing that really struck me was the quality or rather the poor quality of the record keeping. And this, again, is something that I see all the time um, where it's a one-liner, as you said earlier on, the, the notes really are very, very concise and brief. And doctor, the A&E doctor had simply written, discussed with Ghani and called and agreed for discharge. So there was no summary of the discussion, no uh, pointers about what that, um, what that entailed. And what do you see as the biggest problems with that brevity and conciseness in those medical records? Yes, Ellen. So um, big problems in, in many ways. So as, as you said, um, as doctors, we have all seen it happening a lot, um, whether it's doctors or sometimes um, other health professionals. For example, when we are on call, we quite often see um, records in medical records where perhaps the, 
the healthcare assistant or a junior doctor or a nurse may have written um, referred to consultant or doctor informed, but we have no idea what was related to the consultant or what was informed um, to another healthcare provider. So um, in this case, Dr. D did not actually include the specifics of the discussion and thus leaving room for ambiguity about what was actually communicated. He did not document that he had communicated with Dr. Yu about the history of vomiting, nor had he recorded that he had raised the question of whether an ultrasound would be appropriate. So you may ask, do poor records mean poor doctors? No, of course not, but we are all aware of the wise old adage, if it's not recorded, it didn't happen. Um, I think that's something that comes up time and again um, when I speak with um, doctors and nurses. And, you know, it, they, they frequently ask, how am I supposed to balance the pressures and time and writing down everything that happened? It's just not possible because I have to get through the patients. I have to see them. There's so many competing um, issues, so many things that need to be done at the same time. And they frequently ask me, and I'm sure you see this as well in, in your case files, what, what should I be doing? What, what should I be recording? How can I balance those conflicts? So what would you say to your members constitutes a good and safe entry in the medical records? What is enough? So if there is a complaint or a claim, they can rely on those records. And what advice would you give? Yes, Alan. Um, and sadly, what you've just said there is something that is commonly faced by many doctors. The time pressure, the lack of resources, the difficulties in getting um, the balance right between different priorities. And when, when you have an emergency, with, when you have a, a patient who's collapsed in front of you, um, good record keeping um, may well be the last thing in your mind. Now, in complaints and claims, we sometimes get disputes between doctors and patients about what was said or done during a consultation. Um, I know that this case is interesting because the dispute is between two doctors, but a doctor-patient dispute is a lot more common. If the entry in the records is limited or unclear, then it's difficult for doctors to demonstrate that the assessment or discussion took place. Um, one may use the usual practice defence and in a litigated claim, hopes that the judge favour your version rather than the patient's version or the other person's version. But to avoid all that and remove the ambiguity, we should ensure concise but adequate record keeping. And this is not just defensive practice to be able to either defend a claim or concerns the upholding of a complaint or not. It's actually safe practice. So good record keeping allows other doctors to take over one's care. The journey through any care pathway should be clearly documented and includes evidence of clinical reasoning, from history taking to examination, diagnosis, investigations, management plan, follow-up and safety netting. And with the passage of time, the medical records can be the only evidence available to show what happened. And um, in MPS, in the claims team where I work, we see um, a lot of historical claims from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or even longer. And 
understandably, the doctor would have no recollection whatsoever about what happened. And that is when contemporaneous medical records come in. You men mentioned historical claims. One of the things that I see in those is um, the standard, the quality has changed over time. Do you see that in your work, um, John? Do you see that there's been improvements in record keeping? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it would be quite common, let's say 20 years ago, for a doctor to, to well, much like this case, although this is um, very recent, to put a one-liner or sometimes even just the diagnosis. The doctor may feel that this is a very clear diagnosis, let's say UTI, and then record the name of the antibiotics. That's what we used to see or chest infection um, without clarification of the symptoms presented or observations obtained. But nowadays, um, that would that, that's no longer acceptable. Um, that may be the, the usual practice from 20, 30 years ago, but we, doctors do need to be, to be very clear um, in record keeping nowadays. And it is also in line with um, regulatory um, requirements. So really it's about documenting the positive signs that are there that lead you to the diagnosis. So your clinical reasoning is evident. But it's also about the relevant negatives that show that you considered the alternative diagnosis. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, Ellen. Yes. What what um, supports a certain diagnosis, or how uh, a definitive diagnosis is not supported, or is very much less likely? So they can still do a summary. They don't have to have every detail in there, but it's the important facts that need to be that needs to be documented. So if they need to refer to them six months, 12 months, even years down the line, there's enough there for people to be able to see what happened. Yes, absolutely, Ellen. So what do you see as the biggest barriers to good record keeping? Because clearly there's a lot, people are busy. So what would you see as the biggest ones? Well, unfortunately, it is time pressure um, due to resource problems. Uh, you have alluded to, to this um, before this, Ellen. And it is very, very challenging. And many doctors feel that their priorities is to treat and manage the patient. And what was written about what they have done is less important than what they have done. However, um, for patient safety, it is important because the doctor cannot be there 24 hours a day, every day for the same patient. And it is very important when someone else comes around um, for the next shift, that they are very clear as to what had happened, what had been considered, and what had been done for that patient. So, um, although record keeping may be seen as um, less important than the actual action or management itself, it is actually for patient safety that um, record keeping needs to be very clear. And if you were to give either of these doctors, um, some advice. What would be your three top tips about good record keeping for our listeners today to take away and for their practice going forward? So clear and concise record. So we're not, not expecting uh, an essay, an A4 size um, um, essay each time you see a patient either in ED or as a general practitioner, but um, very clear, very concise. Um, as you had um, mentioned before, positive findings as well as negative 
to help um, the reader understand the thought process, very clear safety netting, um, when to come back, the red flag signs, and beware of situations where more comprehensive records may be required. And are there particular situations where you would advise that um, it would be worth the extra minute or two to make more comprehensive records? Are there particular clinical scenarios where you might recommend that? Um, yes, Alan. So when a doctor is unable to meet the patient's expectations, um, it would be worth taking that extra time to to um, record as to why you disagree or you couldn't provide the patient with um, what he or she would like to happen. Um, when a patient lacks capacity, when there may be safeguarding issues or diagnostic uncertainty, that's when it's absolutely worth the time to ensure um, you pay more attention to, to the records. So all very complex but common scenarios that people will come across in clinical practice. Um, but good to keep in the back of the mind so that they can prioritise where to write a bit more and when um, a little bit less might suffice. So thanks, Dawn. That's been really helpful. And with that, we reach the end of today's podcast. If you're a member of Medical Protection, please look in the podcast description for links to relevant learning and a certificate for listening. I've been your host, Ellen Walsh. Thank you.